0: Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 131. It's August 18th, 2015. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager of InvestableWealth.com. When I recorded today's episode, I found out that I had a bad cable on my microphone. And unfortunately, I didn't discover that until after the podcast was already recorded. So I'll ask you to bear with me, this podcast is going to have probably some more background noise and a more of an echo type audio than usual. I'm going to leave it as is. I don't have time to go back and re-record it. Again, I apologize, and I appreciate your understanding. Well, in today's episode, I'm going to try and explain what's going on in the stock market by giving you a micro-analogy of what's going on in the solar bond sector. I think that's really the best way to sum up what we're seeing in the stock market. I do apologize for not publishing an episode last week. I had the best of intentions to get two or three shows out there, but you know what they say about intentions. I don't feel that I short-shifted you, though, in any way, as far as what's going on with commodity prices and the declining prices we see in oil, the devaluation of the Chinese currency. I mean, those are all things that we talked about. I really didn't feel it was necessary to do a podcast and rehash all that. My thoughts and views on oil, on uh, the Chinese market, the strength of the U.S. dollar, that all remains the same. Incidentally, all my blog articles are available at InvestableWealth.com, as are all the audio files from this podcast, the Wealthsteading podcast, are available at Wealthsteading.com. There's a search feature on both of those sites. If you type in keywords like gold or U.S. dollar or oil or China, you'll get a list of previous either blog articles or podcasts that I've done on that subject. And so if you've missed what I've said in the past, you want to review it, it's all there. If you're seeing a headline that's talking about, you know, the surprising devaluation of the, of the Chinese currency, and you remember that I just recently talked about that. If I don't do a new episode, it means that my thoughts remain the same. And as far as the headlines from last week about the surprise move to devaluate the Chinese RMB, uh, and incidentally, I may use different words to refer to that. It's either the Chinese yuan, or RMB, or b. Those are all different terms that you can use for their currency. In any case, last week, the headlines... You know, Monday through Wednesday of last week as they were devaluating their currency, which was dropped, I think, close to 5%, a good 4.5%. Most, if not all, of the media outlets were talking about the surprise move. Well, listeners to this podcast shouldn't have been surprised. We've been talking about the slowdown in China, the fact that they've overbuilt capacity in their factories and in their manufacturing processes, and then they created all types of shadow banking to bankroll and fund a big real estate bubble, and then that didn't work out. And then in the last 12 months or so, the government encouraged individual investors to to go into their stock market. They did everything they could to pump that up. We saw those prices double and then collapse 35% or so earlier this summer. And I've been saying all along that this is all being done by money printing and various forms of quantitative easing, whether they call it that or not. And that's why I've been strong on the U.S. dollar, because we're not just seeing this in China. We're seeing it in Japan. We're seeing it with the Bank of Europe. We're seeing it across the board from mature markets like Europe to emerging markets or commodity-type producing markets, whether it's copper or oil. All these countries are either printing money or lowering interest rates or using some other mechanism to devaluate their currency so that they don't lose market share, so that they continue to generate some type of a cash revenue. It's Saudi Arabia, it's Russia, it's Malaysia, it's Australia. We're seeing it across the board. So it isn't that I have a great deal of faith in the U.S. government or the U.S. economy. We just happen to be the best house in a bad neighborhood. Our currency has remained either stable to strong, not because we're growing at any exponential rates. The Federal Reserve had announced recently that our second quarter growth for GDP was only 2.3%. You know, last year, we were calling for growth well above 3% in 2015. Now, the first half of this year, we can barely even grow at 2.3%. They can blame that on the weather. They can blame that on the strong dollar. They can blame it on whatever they want. The fact of the matter is... That 2.3% growth rate is about as good as any other country. So the world is in an economic slowdown. And for all those reasons, that's why I continue to believe that the U.S. dollar will at least either be stable or will outperform other currencies. So last week when we saw the devaluation of the Chinese currency, it was no surprise to us. I'm digressing here. I'm getting on my soapbox. I really don't want to talk about that specifically in this episode. As I said, my thoughts and opinions haven't changed on any of that. I continue to be long in the US dollar. I continue to be short in oil. I'm monitoring commodity prices, everything from agriculture to iron ore and copper and and the various different products. Just when we think that we're going to get to a low point, those commodity prices continue to make lower lows. At some point, I think it will be profitable to jump in because when those things do bounce, they most likely will at least get an initial run-up. I'd like to be part of that, but at the same time, I don't want to get in too early. That's a big boy's game. You can really get hurt by speculating in commodities. So for now, I'm just exerting caution and I'm waiting to see things consolidate further. As to the Walmart purchase that I made a couple weeks ago, I put out a blog post uh, this evening at investablewealth.com explaining my position there based on uh, what's happened with their announcement today. I won't go into detail with that. You can go over there and read it. The bottom line is that I'm continuing to hold Walmart. I was trying to jump into that stock early before it broke out of its 50-day moving average ahead of their earnings. Whenever you do that, that's always risky. I wasn't concerned today when they announced that they missed their estimated earnings. Uh, why I feel that the stop dropped drop down over three percent, and what, what concerned me was the fact that they lowered their forward guidance, and they lowered it pretty significantly. And that guidance is, is for the next six months. Uh, the guidance beyond that is still right around five dollars, you know, four ninety eight, something like that. So I feel comfortable with that. That's why I'm holding my position. I think that the valuation there on forward earnings is about fourteen times earnings for a company of the quality of Walmart with its long-term growth prospects. I don't think that's an outrageous valuation. And I think a great deal has already been discounted out of that stock. It's down something like, I don't know, 16% year to date. I do think it's oversold. Again, I'm not going to go into that in this episode. Go over to investablewealth.com and read that if you're not on our email list. Speaking of the email list, I think we have all of our bugs worked out. I switched over to a new service please bear with me. There still could be some glitches along the way. If you're getting double copies of the email or if you unsubscribed in the past and you're back on the list now and don't want to be, you know, go ahead and unsubscribe or get in touch with me and we'll take care of that. But I appreciate your patience and I think you'll find that those blog posts will come out on a regular basis now and will go directly to your email box. Okay, so the emphasis for today's episode is not to specifically talk about any particular market or to rehash old things that we've talked about, but I do want to present my thoughts on the economy in a a slightly different light. I want to illustrate something that's happening in a a smaller micro-market But what's happening there, in my opinion, is very much similar to what's going on throughout the market. It's because of the distortions we see from all the uh, central bank intervention, whether it's the U.S. banks, the Federal Reserve, or any of the other central banks or, or sovereign debt funds. Remember, money is fungible. And so if the European Union is printing more euros, that doesn't stay just within their borders or their boundaries. That can come over here, either directly or indirectly, be invested in our equity markets, be invested in our debt markets, it can be used to purchase our treasury bills and bonds. So that can all have a direct impact on our markets, even though it's being done by the European Central Bank. Same thing with the People's Bank of China or the Japanese Central Bank. So just because we've stopped our quantitative easing and supposedly uh, we'll see the Federal Reserve maybe next month raise interest rates, that doesn't mean that other countries' manipulations in their currencies won't affect inflation or deflation within the United States. That's an important concept for you to understand. And all that fiat money floating around the system over the last six years has greatly contributed to the balance sheet engineering and the corporate stock buybacks and the acquisitions and mergers and the fact that we see most developed and mature stock markets, whether it's the U.S. or, or Europe or Japan, we see all these markets at either record highs or near record highs, when at the same time we're seeing deflationary pressures, we're seeing exports decline we're seeing either a slowdown or a loss in corporate profits and in government tax collecting. So while the global economy is slowing, while commodity prices are well below recession lows, we're still seeing high prices on the equity stock markets. That in and of itself does not mean that a catastrophic economic collapse is pending. The fact that we're seeing lower commodity prices and the devaluation of currencies will mean that countries and companies will have lower input costs and will be able to sell and export their products at a lower price. Lower prices always spur more consumption. So this could just be a self-correcting mechanism which doesn't have to result in any gloom and doom. It could just be that these markets are just going to muddle along the way they have for the last eight years. On the positive or on the bright side, it could also mean that these devaluated currencies and the lower input costs because of the cheaper commodity prices could also mean that corporate profits are going to increase and accelerate, right? They're going to be building their products and services with cheaper input costs. They won't pass all that on to the consumer. They'll pocket the difference. That means that they'll see accelerating profits. If that happens, then that means that the stock market, both in the United States and around the world, that all these markets will not only remain near their all-time highs, but most likely we'll see some considerable growth, some appreciation in these equities, and there could be some scenarios where these markets could go on fifteen to twenty percent higher from where they're at right now. Now on the other hand, if you want to look at the negative side or the pessimistic side, we can take the position that the fact that These commodity prices are are extremely low, that that they're below the the recession levels that we saw in 2008, that there's definitely a slowdown not only in global trade and commerce, but also in demand, that we have way too much overcapacity, that that means that corporations can not only not pass on price increases, but that we're going to see general deflation, that companies that make producer products and companies that refine oil or, or dig for raw materials, mine for raw materials that those companies that are heavily leveraged are going to find it hard to pay their operating costs and pay their dividends and pay the interest on their loans and so as a result we're going to see dividends cut we're going to see loans defaulted on, there's going to be general bankruptcies and a major consolidation in the economy. That would be problems for not only the bond market but also for the equity markets. That's the negative or pessimistic outlook. Now I just gave you three scenarios. Scenario one, the economy can just muddle along Scenario two, lower input costs can lead to increasing profits, and these equity markets can go on to all-time new highs, record highs. Or scenario three, things can fall apart, and we can see a 20 or 30 percent pullback and a general global recession. Well, which one of those three will it be? I have absolutely no idea, and it's no different now than it's ever been. Economies and indexes and countries and stock markets... Their future can always be played out in one of three scenarios. There's only one of three outcomes that is ever possible. They'll experience growth and go up. They'll experience a recession or depression and pull back and go down. Or they'll just muddle along and stay the same. Not I, not anybody can come up with an algorithm or a formula that that can predict the future. We can only look at the near past and what's happening today and try and make some educated guesses. So right now, when you see the headlines of someone predicting absolute catastrophic failure, or on the other hand, someone predicting the biggest bull mark ever that the S&P 500 is going to go on to you know 2,500, or that that gold is going to go up to five thousand dollars an ounce, no one can know those things the best you can do is look at the price and volume interaction on those particular commodities or those particular stock prices or the individual indexes and you can be pretty well assured that if those prices are going up in higher volume or if those prices are going down in higher volume then somebody that's probably smarter than you and your brother-in-law somebody with not just a few thousand dollars but somebody with billions of dollars or tens of billion dollars to invest someone at a hedge fund, or some other type of institutional investor like a pension fund, someone that employs a lot of MBAs and probably makes a lot of political contributions, you know, somebody that, again, is a little bit more connected than you and your brother-in-law, well, they're probably the people that are driving those markets. And the reason they're either buying into some markets or selling out of others is because they have a better idea of what's happening than we do. That's why we watch the charts. That's why we look for this price and volume interaction. Here's the problem, here's the problem that we've experienced since 2008, and it goes back to that manipulation and intervention by the central banks, uh, all the balance sheet engineering, the, the corporate buybacks, all these things I've just alluded to and that we've talked about in previous podcasts. Let me sum it up for you by talking about solar bonds. That's solar, like solar energy, solar panels, and bonds, B-O-N-D-S. If you're not aware of it, most solar installations are not paid for by, with cash. They're purchased in the form of some type of a debt. In most cases, most or all of the solar panels that are sold at the retail level, these would be panels that are on your, you know, like your neighbor's house, in most or almost all cases, that's financed with debt. People are not taking the $20,000 that it costs to install those panels, you know, out of their checking account and writing out a check for it, nor are they putting it on their credit card. What they're doing is they're financing it through the company that installed those panels or was the manufacturer of those panels. Usually it's the installer. So it's kind of similar to you going down to Ford or Chrysler or BMW and either that automotive company or the dealership or a third party that they work with provides you with the automobile loan because you don't have the cash to buy the automobile outright. Okay, so here's the problem. It's not that that in and of itself is an issue, except that from what I can tell, most of these loans that are being made are what we would consider subprime loans. The people that are taking out these loans to buy solar panels are not necessarily consumers with the highest credit ratings. They may not have stellar credit, but because these installation companies want to make sales, they're willing to loan just about anybody money, right? Does this sound familiar? Have you heard this scenario before? Well, of course you have. That's why I'm using this as an analogy to kind of explain what's going on in the market overall. And why it's so hard to really get a good handle for whether the future is going to be bright or whether it's going to be dim. It's because we have all this phony baloney money floating around out there. And we can't tell, for example, on the solar panel market, if there's real consumer demand by people that not only want solar panels, but by people that are smart enough to know it makes economical sense for them to own it, and for them to be be making rational decisions to make that purchase, meaning that there's going to be long-term demand for these products. Okay, now let me clarify right from the top here. I'm not saying anything bad about solar panels. I'm not saying that they aren't right for you. I'm not saying that I myself might not purchase them at some point. If I owned a cabin or property up in the uh, Utah mountains, you know, not too far from where I live, I would most likely outfit it with solar panels, particularly if it was something off the grid. You know, my friend Stephen Harris says the most expensive electricity is the electricity you don't have. And so I might be willing to make that investment if I had a cabin or a house that was sitting up on the hill or the mountaintop and had excellent southern exposure. You know, I live in a part of the world that although it gets cold, it it remains sunny most of the year. So that might make sense in that type of a setting. But there's no way that I would make that same decision to put those solar panels on the house that I live in that's in the current subdivision. The sunlight access is all wrong. There's, There's, in my opinion, not enough roof for it. It would take maybe 25 or 30 years to get a return on my investment. I'm not interested in investing my money for 25 or 30 years to get a return. I could be dead in 25 years. I could choose to move and sell my house to someone that doesn't appreciate it. New technologies could come along which uh, could make newer solar panels much more effective, efficient, and, and you know, drastically at a lower cost. The price of natural gas and and petroleum products could go even lower and could result in cheaper electric bills, which would mean that my return on investment for the panels would be dragged out even longer. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen in the next 25 years. So there's no way I would currently make that investment to put solar panels on the roof of my house but I know a lot of people are doing it. And from the data that I'm reading, I'm not convinced that these are the savviest of, of consumers, nor are these necessarily people that, that have the knowledge to be able to tell what a good investment is or to run a spreadsheet to figure out net present value or how to properly amortize an expensive investment like that that's going to go on for 25 years or so. I mean, in a lot of cases, these are the same people that are going out and taking loans for 30 to $60,000 to drive an automobile that they can't afford and that's devaluating, sitting in their driveway, losing value on a daily basis. In many cases, these are people that have either very little equity in their house or they're totally underwater. But again, they're qualifying for these solar loans or what's being called solar bonds because these are being pushed by salesmen to get people to buy solar panels that they can't afford. Now, I'm not saying that that's you in your particular situation. If you're thinking about it or if you've done it yourself and you think it was a good investment, well, you know, congratulations, good for you. You have to draw your own conclusions. I'm just telling you that with the research I've done and then anecdotally with the stories that I've heard about and the people that I've talked to, I think a lot of people are just making really poor investments in solar panels. Think of it in these terms. If solar panels are such a good deal, and again, I want to stress here, I don't have any hate or dislike for solar panels or solar energy. That That isn't the point I'm trying to make. I'm just talking about how to evaluate an investment. And I'm not talking about investing in the environment or investing in, in uh, the prevention of, of uh, climate change or any of that kind of things. I'm just talking about the bottom line, dollars and cents investing. And so from that perspective, if solar panels are such a good idea and, and provide such a good return on investment and... And, and such a good savings on energy costs, and particularly when you factor in that for now the government, whether it's a state or federal, you might get a lot of subsidies for it. And again, looking out to the future on that, we don't know uh, what how those incentives are going to play out. But even if you take into consideration the incentives that are offered now, ask yourself this. Other than people that are directly involved in the energy business, or some type of uh, government institution, or some kind of tie to the government, or somebody that's trying to do some type of of, uh, greenwashing, uh, environmental marketing. How many actual businesses do you see with solar panels on the roofs? I travel all around the country, and I would venture to say I don't see too many. Most of the installations I see going in are either things that have been funded you know by the government on military bases or government buildings or companies that have direct ties to the government or somebody that's somehow you know involved in the solar panel business. This is just an observation on my part. I could be totally wrong, but that's what I'm seeing. Most of the real growth in my opinion seems to be coming from the residential market. Let me give you one anecdotal example to back up what I'm talking about. Whenever you're flying across a country and you know you look out over small towns and cities and things in the, in the middle part of the country, and as you uh, land in a big city, you know as you're approaching the airport and you're landing, you can look down on any of those big cities or these smaller towns and, and uh, villages that are throughout the country, and in most cases, you're going to see a property that's owned by Walmart. Whether it's a Sam's Club or a Walmart store or one of their affiliates, Walmart has over 5,000 stores in the United States. So just about any place that you're going to fly over is going to have some type of a Walmart property. Ask yourself this question. How many of those Walmart roofs have solar panels on them? Well, from what I've looked into, several years ago, Walmart said that they were going to derive at least 3% of their energy needs from solar energy. Well, if we fast forward to 2015, they're generating less than 2% of their energy needs from solar energy. So what I'm trying to point out here is that if a company that's as savvy as Walmart that company has been in business for over fifty three years walmart's net income for this quarter was almost three and a half billion dollars they may not be making as much money as wall street would like them to make but they are still one of the world's most profitable companies and yes right now they're struggling like all retailers are they're fighting a battle with Amazon to try and not lose their sales to the online sale market but walmart's total top-line revenue is $485 billion. Amazon sales are only $96 billion. So Walmart is, you know, a full five times larger than Amazon. And not only that, but Walmart makes a lot of money. Walmart is very profitable. Amazon is not turning a profit. I'm belaboring the point, but I just want to lay it out for you. Walmart knows what they're doing. They're not stupid people. So if solar energy is such a good deal and there's so many government incentives and it's so efficient and you can save so much on your energy and you can sell it back to the power grid and all those kind of things then why is Walmart generating less than 2% of its energy needs from solar energy? Why whenever you drive around this country or when you fly over it and you look down and you see Sam's Club's roofs and Walmart roofs and for that matter all that other flat roof space out there why aren't they filled with solar panels? My argument would be that right now they still don't make financial sense. So that takes me back to these solar bonds. I hear a lot of hype, I see a lot of things being sold, but I'm not seeing profits being made by the big installation companies nor by the solar panel manufacturers. And I'll just give you a few examples here. There was a local company here in Utah that I was, I was watching grow and watching them progress. Their name is Vivid Solar. They were just recently bought out by Sun Edison. I was shocked to see that Sun Edison bought them out for $2.2 billion. The reason this was so surprising to me is, is that when I looked at the numbers, I didn't see that Viv and Solar was making any money. What made even less sense to me is when I looked at the company that purchased them, Sun Edison, well, guess what? They're not making any money either. They've got a market capitalization of over $4.5 billion, and they're losing something like $4 a share in the last month or so their stock price is down about fifty four percent. As near as I can tell, Sun Edison and Vivint Solar and these other companies that are going out installing these panels My understanding is that a lot of it is kind of door-to-door or even some type of uh, consumer-driven, I don't want to call it necessarily multi-level marketing, but uh, where the consumer has an incentive to go out and get his neighbors to buy solar panels, you know, they'll get some kind of a bonus or some type of a discount. I don't have any inside information on these companies. I'm just telling you what anecdotally I've heard, but I don't think I'm too far off base. So again, take it for what it's worth. I'm just giving you my opinion. What I do know, though, is that the big gorilla in this market is solar city solar city is owned by elon musk you're probably familiar with musk he's a brilliant man he was a co-founder of paypal that's where he's made his billions he's taken that money and he's invested it in a lot of successful startup companies companies that you're aware of tesla spacex solar city These are all wildly successful startups, I say successful from the aspect that their stock prices have exploded exponentially. All of these companies are potentially creating some amazing technology that's going to have a big payoff in the future, but for right now, even though vast sums of money have been invested in them, I don't think any of them are making any money. But let me point out something that's going on in this subprime loan lending for solar panels and this whole creation of solar bonds. And there was a Fortune magazine article that talked about this a couple weeks ago. I'll put the link in the show notes so you can read about it yourself. But to summarize what's going on, and again, this, I believe, is characteristic throughout the industry. It's just not happening with Elon Musk's companies. But for some time now, we've heard how great Solar City's doing, what fantastic sales they have, all the installations that are going on, and the fact that these are being funded through solar bonds. In my opinion, these are very much like the subprime mortgages that were put together during the last housing bubble. This is where you go out and you sell a product to somebody that can't afford it, doesn't have a good enough credit rating to get a, a normal loan. You make this subprime loan and then you bundle it together into a bond. In this case it's being called a solar bond, and then that's sold to investors. Well, Solar City's been telling us that's what they're doing, that's how they're funding their expansion. According to the Fortune article, Solar City has something like $202 million worth of solar bonds that are outstanding debt. And that's all well and good. And, and so you have to be asking yourself well, who's buying these bonds? Is Goldman Sachs buying these? Is some large pension fund you know, thinking that this is such a good investment and a return on dollars that, that they would be invested in it? Or perhaps is this you know just being turned around and, and sold to the retail market, again, mom and pop investors that aren't very sophisticated and really wouldn't know whether or not they were getting a good deal or not. You know Who's buying these things? Well according to the Fortune Magazine article, of these $202 million in solar bonds that are out there, $165 million worth, that's about 82% of all the debt that's been issued. Well guess what? All those bonds have been purchased by one company. That's right, one company has purchased over 80% of all the outstanding debt in these solar bonds from Solar City for about $165 million. And guess who that company is? Why, it's SpaceX. That's right, SpaceX, that's, that's Elon Musk's company. Remember, he owns Tesla, he owns Solar City, and he owns SpaceX. So again, ask yourself this if these are good high-quality loans, if these are loans that someone would believe are going to pay a nice strong dividend out into the future into, you know 25-30 years from now, you know, at a time that we have very low interest rates, at a time when people are just searching to find a good reliable yield. If these things are such a good deal, then why isn't Goldman Sachs buying them? Why isn't some big pension fund or some large insurance company? Why aren't one of these type of companies purchasing these bonds? Why are they being purchased by a sister company of Solar City? Now, listen, I'm not saying this is a Ponzi scheme. I'm not saying that this is some kind of a sleight- of-hand scam, but to my simple mind, it sure does seem like robbing Peter to Pay Paul. and while it may not be a scam or a scheme, perhaps you'd call it a charade. I tell you this story because I think it's a micro example of what's happening in this particular solar panel market that's really being played out across our economy, across not only the U.S., but the global economy. And it's what's happening on a macro scale. It's what's driving all these corporate buybacks, these crony capitalist shenanigans, and these balance sheet engineering. As I look at the global economy, I just don't see real growth taking place. We have so much quantitative easing, government deficit spending, and intervention by central banks that it's just like these solar bonds. You don't know if these products and services are being sold because there's real demand or if it's all being hyped up by phony baloney money. Now, I want to stress here, this doesn't mean that we're headed for an economic collapse. I don't believe that at all. But if something doesn't shore up this market, I can definitely see how we could easily have a 15 to 30% pullback. On the other hand, as I talked about, with these low input costs and the total collapse of commodity prices, that along with all this cheap debt and all this money printing could keep this bull market going on longer, further escalating corporate profits and leading to all-time new highs in the stock markets. So what do you do? Well, as I've been stressing all year, I think you invest with caution. I think you go forward carefully. I think you make wise decisions. You look at the fact that we've been in this bull market for six and a half years. And a lot of it's been perpetuated with quantitative easing. And we don't have solid global demand in the fundamentals that would justify propping this market up. So you move forward cautiously. You don't put all your money in the backyard and bury it. You don't put all your money in gold. You don't jump into commodities just because the price has collapsed. Because trust me, the price could go lower. Just be careful. Don't be afraid to, to take some profits and to take a breather and just wait and see how this plays out. In this podcast, I can never offer you advice or recommendations. I just tell you what's on my mind. I give you some insight into the trades I'm making. I throw my ideas out there and I just talk out loud. So take them for what they're worth. Well, that'll wrap up today's podcast. I've accumulated a lot of questions from those of you in the audience. and It's been a long time since I've had a question and answer show. So what I'm going to try and do is come back later this week and consolidate and address those questions. I appreciate those of you that have taken the time to provide me with comments and feedback. Although I can't answer each of you individually, I definitely read all the emails and comments, and, and when I feel it's appropriate, I do try and answer you directly. So join me in the next episode. We'll answer some listener questions. Until then, as always, this is John Pagliano wishing you the very best of returns. Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 131. It's August 18th, 2015. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager of InvestableWealth.com. When I recorded today's episode, I found out that I had a bad cable on my microphone, and unfortunately, I didn't discover that until after the podcast was already recorded. So I'll ask you to bear with me. This podcast is going to have probably some more background noise and a more of an echo type audio than usual. I'm going to leave it as is. I don't have time to go back and re-record it. Again, I apologize, and I appreciate your understanding.